Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. Today we are talking with Dr Terry Quinn. Uh, Dr Quinn, first and foremost, is a consultant in old age and stroke medicine. Um, he also holds the position of Joint Stroke Association and Chief Scientist Office Senior Clinical Lecturer. It's quite a mouthful. And he's got a broad research portfolio with principal interests around trial methodology, functional assessment and neuropsychological consequences of cardiovascular disease. I'm not entirely sure what all that means, but hopefully we're going to find out. And you were also telling me, Terry, that you are involved in the Cochrane Dementia Group. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so just recently I've taken on the coordinating editor role for the Cochrane Dementia Group. Fantastic. And one of the things we do in Cochrane is we take research that's out there and we try and bring it together and make it accessible for, you know, for, for working clinicians. So that's why I was really keen to be part of this podcast. Brilliant. And you have a paper in publication, is that right? Looking at the assessment of cognition in stroke patients, isn't that right? Th- th- that's right. A lot, a lot of what I'm interested in is how can we take cognitive assessments and make them practical, make them useful for guys like you in the ED. And hopefully that's what we're going to talk about today. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, look, I thought when I was just doing a wee bit of research on you, and I've kind of known you passing in the corridors and referring patients to you over a number of years. I can't even remember the first time you would have crossed paths, but I didn't, I wasn't aware of all of your research interests and all that you do in the background. So my first question for you is, what is the keys to your success? What is the keys to your productivity? And what is the keys to contentment for you in in medicine? Wow. So starting with a big question. It's a big one, isn't it? I like it. Okay. So the key to success, well, the key to success in academic medicine is something that I thought I knew, but as I've progressed a bit in academic medicine, I've realised I was completely wrong. So I used to think that to be a success in academic medicine, you had to work incredibly hard. You had to be brilliant at everything, never make a mistake. And actually, that's that's not really the truth. And the people I see who are successful in academic medicine, and I guess are role models to me, the characteristics they have are things like they think outside the box. They don't just accept dogma. And they, 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 they still have a passion about finding out about things. You do have to work hard as well. There's no getting away from that. But those are the characteristics I think you need to be a success in academic medicine. Fantastic. And what about your clinical work? Any Have you found that having outside interest, having a big interest in, in academia has helped you enjoy your, your medical career? Is it good to diversify? Is it good to have different interests, do you think? Uh, uh, absolutely. So my, my research, I've always tried to keep a clinical focus. And I think if you're going to be a clinical academic, you really need to keep up your clinical work. You need to know what other people in in your field are doing. You need to know what's happening in, in the clinical world. And then you take that back. And there's a nice interplay of perhaps new things come up that people are doing in clinical practice. And you ask yourself, why are we doing that? Does that work? Do we have evidence? And then you can take that back to the research world. And then in the other direction, in the research world, we maybe find out new things that work or things that maybe don't work as well as we, we might like. And then we use that to try and shape what we do in clinical practice. So I thought we could talk about cognitive impairment, if that's okay. And you've been doing a lot of work on assessment of cognitive impairment in stroke patients. And I think there's probably a lot of uh, that information that would be applicable in the emergency department. So just uh, starting off with, how, how common do you think cognitive impairment is and what sort of conditions and scenarios would we see in the emergency department? 
Sure. So one of the things that comes up time and time again in my own research, looking at other people's research, is the harder you look for cognitive impairment in acute settings, the more you find. So you want to know which patients are at risk. Well, any patient that's unwell, and so by implication, anyone in the ED is at risk of having cognitive impairment. And actually, I think we perhaps do patients a disservice by trying to focus our assessment of cognition to, say, the very elderly or stroke or people with neurological presenting complaints, because actually cognitive problems can be a presentation of virtually any disease. And why is it important to assess for it properly? I know that you're very keen that we give it more consideration and we assess for it more properly. What are the advantages of doing that, and in particular in the emergency setting? Sure. So there's really three reasons in my head why I think assessing for cognition is everyone's business. And the first one is it's so common. If you look in the emergency department, you're looking at about maybe... 40, 50% of people coming in in contemporary units have some form of cognitive impairment. So, you know, this this isn't niche medicine. This, this is something that's incredibly, incredibly prevalent. I guess another reason is the presence of a cognitive impairment is a very powerful prognostic marker. If you take two people of roughly the same age with roughly the same kind of disease presentation, if one of them has cognitive problems and the other one doesn't, the one with cognitive problems is going to do badly. And why is that? I've heard that before. What's the reasons behind that? So I think that's a good question. And when I say that's a good question, what I mean is I can't answer it well. <laughs> Some of it may be that the, the, the cognitive impairment is telling you about disease severity. Although the things we measure, like a MUSE score, are similar, the underlying disease is more, more severe than the person with the cognitive impairment. The other thing is the person with the cognitive impairment probably has less reserve. We're thinking more and more about physical frailty in older adults that come to the ED. There's also a concept of cognitive frailty. It often goes hand in hand with physical frailty. But these are people that have less reserve. They're less able to cope with a physiological insult like illness. And then you had a third point before I interrupted you there. So, Sorry. so my, my third point, I think this is actually the most important point, is the reason we need to be thinking about this is because patients tell us it's the most important thing to them. So I was lucky enough to be involved in a group called the James Lind Alliance. And what James Lind do is they take patients and carers and charity and third sector and they get them all round the table and they say, what what are the important things for research? And we did that for stroke. And by a country mile, the most important thing was about cognition. People with stroke said, what I'm worried about is memory and thinking. It's not my weak arm. It's not my weak leg. It's not my loss of vision. I'm worried about memory and thinking. And actually, I think if you speak to a lot of older adults, it's cognitive problems that really, really worry them. And I think you and I had spoken a little bit before and we were talking about how you were keen that we would assess it more appropriately in A&E. So I was going to just ask you, why do you think it's important that we do it in ED? What are the benefits of assessment at that point when we feel that we're under a lot of pressure, we're very busy, I know everyone is, but we kind of feel like we're, we, we like to do, not the bare minimum, but we, we try to you know stabilise physiology, get them better, get some treatment and, and, and pass them on to someone else. So what's the advantage of us assessing in the ED rather than the receiving physician doing the initial assessment sure. later down the line? Well, one of the advantages you have in the ED, I think, and you can, t- you can tell me if I'm picking this up wrong, is often there's someone with the patient And if you want to do a good assessment of cognition, you need to get some collateral, you need to get some informant history. 
And by the time they come to us in the downstream wards, that informant has often disappeared. And we try our best to get hold of them, but you've, you've, you've got them right there. And taking an informant and asking them the important things about cognition doesn't need to be a lengthy process. There's ways to do that in one, two minutes that can give incredibly useful information for when they do go to the downstream ward. So let's talk about the best way to assess for cognitive impairment, if that's okay. So currently in our department, we use AMT4, which is the four-item abbreviated mental test score. So that's essentially age, date of birth, place and year. So is that enough? Is that the best um, test? I know you'd mentioned collateral information source from family and relatives. So what would be the, the, the most appropriate little package of assessment in the emergency department for cognitive impairment? So in my head, I think of tools like the AMT4. Their purpose is to tell you about that person's cognition at that point in time, which is useful, but you need to put that in the context of how they've been beforehand. Someone could have a very low AMT, but equally have had a very low AMT a week ago, a month ago, and nothing much has changed. You know, And that, that has different implications to someone who cognitively was very good and now is very confused. So in my head, AMT4, AMT10, these other short screening tools, they tell you some of the story, but then you want to complement that with two other things. One would be information from an informant and asking something as simple as, have they changed? Can be useful, but you can formalise that a little bit more and there are questionnaires, for example, the AD8 gives you eight questions, yes or no questions that you can ask an informant that has been shown to be a very good way of differentiating a long-standing dementia process from something more acute. And there's, there's, a similar, there's a similar questionnaire called the IQ Code, the Informant Questionnaire for Cognitive Decline in the Elderly. 16 questions, but it's the kind of thing you can give to a relative and say, could you just fill this in while I'm assessing your loved one? And again, it gives you lots and lots of information about how things have been in the period running up to that admission. The third thing I think you have to look for is delirium. And we have various ways of looking for delirium. The 4A test is one that's gained a lot of traction in Scotland and to my mind is a very good way of, of assessing. So if you then have a test that tells you about cognition at that point in time, a, a questionnaire from the informant that tells you about how cognition has changed over the last few months and an assessment for delirium, you can triangulate them and that gets you closer to seeing you know, what's going on cognitively with this patient. So Terry, clearly this next question is not for my benefit. I clearly know the answer to this, he says with a wink. Um, so w- what is the main broad differentiation between cognitive impairment and delirium? Sure. So cognitive impairment is an umbrella term. Someone could have cognitive impairment because of a pre-existing dementia that's no better or no worse than it was six months ago or they could have cognitive impairment because of a delirium an acute presentation of cognitive change driven by an underlying illness so the screening tests that you mentioned like the amt4 they tell you about cognitive impairment but they don't allow you to differentiate whether that's a long-standing problem or whether that's an acute problem probably driven by delirium and just to complicate things dementia and delirium often go together And what you'll often find is you have someone with cognitive impairment who does have an underlying delirium, but that's in the context of a a dementia process. So we've identified a problem 
um, this patient's got a, a cognitive impairment. So what's next? What what should we be doing in the emergency department? Okay, well, unfortunately, as with as with many things in geriatric medicine, there isn't a simple answer to oh, that. Terry, don't be telling me that now. It's often <laughs> multifactorial in, it, in its presentation and multifactorial in the things that cause it. So the treatment and the interventions have to be multifactorial as well. You want to optimise physiology as best you can. And someone with delirium, you know, if, if they are very drowsy with that, they're not going to be eating and drinking so well. They're not going to be moving about. They're going to be prone to dehydration. They're going to be prone to DVT. And those things are only going to make the delirium worse. So, you know, trying to get the physiology right, I don't think it ever does much harm to give someone with delirium some background fluids, you know, and give them a bit of DVT prophylaxis. Those kind of things that are very general medical, but equally applicable to people with delirium. I think you have to recognise how distressing delirium is for the pe- person experiencing it and for the family. And one of the the major areas of progress that we've made, particularly here in the Royal Infirmary, is we have information leaflets now. And we have ways of explaining to family what delirium is, what that means, what the prognosis is. And I think families take a lot of comfort from that because the the immediate thought if a loved one is acting confused is, oh my gosh, they've got dementia. They're never going to get better. What are we going to do? So you know that, that information provision is is a very important thing. And as we said before, but I think it's worth reiterating, look to see what's the thing that's caused this. And that may be a life-threatening illness, you know, like a pneumonia, like a myocardial infarction, or it may be something much more minor. In reality, in my experience, it's often more than one thing. So you have to throw the net quite wide to find the things that have caused this and then get on and treat them. So what are the big conditions that we maybe forget about or don't think about as frequently as being a cause of cognitive impairment and delirium? So the kind of things that can trigger delirium depend a little bit on your cognitive reserve, if you like, your cognitive frailty. And so someone who cognitively is fairly frail, it doesn't take a lot to tip them into delirium. And you may be looking for very serious illnesses like pneumonia, myocardial infarction, but in fact things you might think of as being relatively benign like constipation can be enough to tip someone into delirium if they already have a degree of cognitive impairment. So would it be fair to say that it's nearly innumerable the amount of things they can do? It's you, you just need a very thorough, <clears throat> complete history and examination, which we all do in emergency medicine. You know that, Terry, don't you? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it is. I, I can't give you any shortcuts. In, in geriatric medicine, we talk about the geriatric giants that are stereotyped ways that any number of different conditions tend to present and the geriatric giants are falling over, becoming incontinent, becoming less mobile, physically defunctioning, and becoming confused. And almost any disease process you can think of can present with one or more of one of those different syndromes. So we put out a request for questions from our listeners, and we got one question, Terry. I just don't think delirium in the emergency department generates as much Twitter excitement as thoracotomies and surgical airways. So please don't be offended. But Phil Monroe very kindly got back to us and he asked, you know, obviously we need to get better at identifying delirium, but are there any specific interventions that can be added in the emergency department to improve outcome and not just general things like antibiotics and fluids? Good question. Thank you, Phil. Um, I suspect within that question, he was thinking, are there medications, are there pharmacological things we can do 
to try and reduce or prevent delirium. And unfortunately, although there's been lots of research looking at that, at the moment all of those studies have tended to be neutral. We don't have good medications to prevent delirium. Lots of things have been tried, but none of them have really been proven to work. And when delirium becomes apparent, we don't have great medications to reduce its severity or to reduce its duration. One time there was a lot of interest in antipsychotics, but what we've found is that they tend to, rather than stop the delirium, they turn a hyperactive delirium into a hypoactive delirium, which I guess is potentially easier to manage, but it's no better for the patient in terms of outcomes. The, the beginning of the question was not just fluids, not just antibiotics, and I'd put it back, I'd put it back to you and I'd put it back to everyone working in medicine. Are we doing those things good enough? Because what's been proven to really work for delirium prevention and delirium treatment is just getting those basics right, the hydration, the mobilisation, the reorientation, getting the family involved, reducing their distress. Those are the things that seem to work. So I thought I would ask you a little bit about stroke medicine. Sure. Is there anything burning that you would like to get off your chest, Terry? Is there <laughs> anything that annoys you that ED do that you wish we would do differently? Or is there anything, uh, put another way, is there anything that, that you think would be helpful to emergency physicians in terms of stroke assessment, management, treatment, or whatever? This is your opportunity if, if there was anything that you wanted to kind of share with us. Sure. So um, I'm not just saying this because we're being recorded. I think I think the stroke management in the Royal Infirmary is very good. And I think part of that is because we come down to the ED, you know, not infrequently if a patient comes in to be assessed for thrombolysis or other hyperacute therapies, the consultants come down and we have, we have that opportunity to interact, to chat to each other. And that's worked both ways. It's made us better, I think, as stroke physicians because we know more about how the ED works. And hopefully, you know, through chatting with us, people in the ED have become a bit more comfortable with stroke. I mean, you, you, you can tell me if you think that's true. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We actually did a podcast recently with uh, Professor Keith Muir. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about more about stroke, but it seems that we're doing less and less. It seems we're just a conduit. You know, we're, they pass through. It, it kind of feels like A&E is having less and less to do with stroke patients in some way, which I think is you know, what is probably is required. I think it's just door to needle time. I think it's quick passage through to investigations and treatment. Is that fair? Absolutely. You, you remember back in the day with, with myocardial infarction when we were thrombolizing, we talk about time is myocardium. Yeah. Well, the same is true for stroke. Time is brain. And we're not talking about hours or days. We're talking, we're talking about minutes. We need to do things quickly. I guess where you have a really important role is in that initial identification because we can't see a patient that we don't know about. So, you know, having the penny drop thinking, oh, could this be stroke? Should I get the stroke team involved? That, that's where you guys have a real role to play. And I would much rather see more presentations that weren't stroke than potentially miss a stroke that we could give treatment to. So I always like to end these podcasts with a little trip back in time. Okay. Come on my time machine. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go back and we're going to we're going to meet your junior self just leaving university, starting out all fresh. So what with your experience, what have you gained that you would pass on to your junior self just starting out? Now that could be a clinical pearl, could be non-clinical, but what what do you think would be a good piece of advice for someone starting out? Okay. Well, knowing my younger self, 
I think if my older self came and tried to give any kind of advice, I would just ignore it anyway. (laughs) But, you know, um, what I would say is if there are things that you are passionate about and that really interest you and that really are the things that get you up in the morning and get you going into work, stick with them. So in in the academic career, it is difficult to get things like fellowships, And there were times when I thought, is the work that I'm doing the right work? I was interested in cognition and stroke at a time when no one else was really interested in that. And I wasn't getting grants funded. I wasn't getting fellowships. People were telling me I was working in an area that was irrelevant. But that didn't seem right to me. It seemed like the right area to me. So rightly or wrongly, I just dug the heels in and stuck with it. And, you know, we're in a different place now. And I think people do recognise that that's that's an important area and and that's worked well for me and I've been able to use that to take the academic career forward. So I guess the advice would be stick with it. And any little clinical pearls, any little stroke pearls that 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 maybe not everyone knows aren't in all the textbooks that's something that kind of serves you well from time to time? Okay, well will I tell you a delirium pearl? Please, please, absolutely perfect. Considering this was supposed yeah. to be a, a podcast around delirium, we've could, moved I, on to stroke. I could tell you many stroke pearls, but I think <laughs> we don't have enough room on the tape. for. <laughs> so if you want to look clever, when you're assessing for delirium, look for carphology and flossillation. Now wow. you may say, what are carphology and flossillation, Terry? I was going to tell you what they were, Terry. <laughs> so picking at the air, picking at things that aren't there, or picking at your clothes, you know, it looks like someone's just picking dust from their clothes, or carphology and flossillation, they're said to be pathonomic of delirium. If you see someone who seems, you know, just a little bit not with it, picking at the air or picking at their clothes, you really don't need to do any further assessment. They've got delirium. Fantastic. Well, that's a great way to end, something I've never heard of before. So that's a brilliant little pearl we can all use in the future. So, Terry, thank you so much for coming. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, anything you would like to say one last thing? If I could use this opportunity to make a gratuitous plug for some of the things Please I do. Please do. With, within Cochrane, we want to get more interaction from people working in ED, from people working in emergency services. Even if you don't want to be a card-carrying academic, we would still want to work with you. So if being involved in writing a Cochrane review is something that you're interested in, get in touch. At the moment, we have a Cochrane Fellowship where we'll pay for some of your time to go to training, get you trained up and then get you writing a Cochrane Review with us. And that's open to anyone regardless of any discipline. And I'd really like to see people from the ED applying to that. Wow, that's fantastic, Terry, because actually uh, some of our other recent podcasts, we've been asking other people with research interests, how can we be better at research in emergency departments? So that's an absolutely fantastic tip. So thank you very much. And we will put all that information in the show notes, if that's okay, some links yep. to, to what you're doing. Well, Terry, look, thank you very, very much. I can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So thank you very much for listening. My main take-home points from today are the reasons that we should be assessing for cognitive impairment are threefold. Firstly, it's very common. Secondly, its presence is a powerful prognostic marker. And thirdly, patients often say that it is more important to them than the physical disability of illness. The main advantage of assessing for it in the emergency department is that there is often a relative or friend who can provide a corroborating history. 
So how do we treat it? Well, there are no good treatments to prevent delirium or reduce its severity or duration. So it's the basics of optimising physiology, hydrating and providing DVT prophylaxis, and then treating the underlying cause, antibiotics have indicated, but remembering that in people with low cognitive reserve it can be minor ailments such as constipation that can tip them into full-blown delirium. And finally, carphology is aimlessly picking at bedclothes and flocillation is plucking at the air and these are pathognomonic of delirium. So many thanks again for listening and thank you to Dr. Terry Quinn for his time and thoughts on delirium. And please visit stmungos-ed.com where you'll find the show notes to accompany the podcast with links to lots of the topics of discussion today. And also you'll find there lots of other additional educational resources for your enjoyment. Many thanks again for listening. Take care.